Welcome to Puro Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by business editor and columnist Greg Jefferson, reporter Brian Chasnoff. And uh, we're recording this on Monday, February 7th. Uh, early voting for the primaries in Texas uh, will begin a week from today, uh, February 14th, for the March 1st primaries. And uh, our guest today is uh, playing a, a huge role uh, in in the the primary elections that we have coming up. Uh, Jessica Cisneros is a Laredo attorney. She's making her second bid to unseat Congressman Henry Cuellar in U.S. District 28. And this is a district that includes part of San Antonio and runs all the way down to McAllen. Uh, her, she ran in 2020 and came remarkably close to defeating him, got to uh, within 4%, um, one of the closest races he's ever had. She's going to be in San Antonio on Saturday uh, noon at the Paper Tiger for a big campaign event that will also feature um, uh, Greg Kassar, who's uh, running in U.S. District 35, and it will feature a, a visit from New York Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Uh, Jessica Cisneros, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the invite. Well, there's so much to talk about, uh, but I wanted to ask you about something that's obviously been in the news uh, quite a bit over the last few weeks. And obviously, we don't know too much uh, about this, and, and uh, it's probably uh, difficult for for you to talk about it because uh, we it's still so uh, unclear where this is going to go. But less than three weeks ago, um, the home and the campaign headquarters of uh, Henry Quare were both uh, raided by the FBI. There's some kind of investigation going on, um, apparently related to Azerbaijan and maybe some connections that uh, U.S. individuals have with Azerbaijan um, officials and, and, and business people. We're, it's, I, I think it's unlikely that we're going to have any kind of resolution or know much more about this uh, before uh, the March 1st election day. What do you make of this? And how do you think voters should assess this situation, which is obviously it's a big story, but yet it's a story that um, we, you know, we have limited knowledge about? Yeah, I mean, it was truly shocking. I think it happened on January 19th. Um, and I remember that day because I think you know, usually people pay attention to races. I want to say, like, from our experience last time, like, they'll really focus on it maybe a week before early vote. But I think since then, um, people really have been, especially at the doors and over the phones, when we've been making contact with voters, it's something that they bring up very, very often. Um, and I think it was just shocking to, like, so many people in the district and people outside of the district um, because I, mean, I don't think it's every day that your sitting member of Congress gets raided by the FBI, right? right. Um, and I think, you know, obviously we don't know exactly what's going on, um, but what, the stuff that we do know, you know, a lot of voters have been like, I mean, that's very suspicious. I mean, the fact that the task force that was involved um, in the raid and the seizure of the congressman's property is one that's um, in charge of investigating um, bribery and corruption, right? And that's something that definitely gets brought up by voters. And I mean, I think they're approaching it the same way that we are, where, you know, this is more so of a symptom, right, of kind of the the track record that Guayar has had in Washington, D.C., where, you know, I mean, the fact that part of the investigation is maybe him being too cozy with like foreign, um, like a foreign government or foreign oil in this case. Mm -hmm. um, and it's like, well, I mean, what 
kind of dealings are these supposed to benefit like people in the district, right? And that's a case that we've been making since the very beginning where it's like, he's not working for us. He's working for folks who, you know, are um, helping his political career or, you know, donating campaign cash, um, especially the corporate PACs um, and people like, I think with this, it really hammered home that point of like, who is Henry Coyette actually working for? Um, so it's been interesting to see how voters um, still obviously, you know, taking in the information that they need before they make a decision on who they're going to vote for. But this was a very dramatic shift where people are like they were leaning or they were still undecided all of a sudden be like, we cannot have someone like that representing us, especially someone who's going to be distracted by an FBI investigation. Hey, Jessica, I wanted to ask you about the uh, Voter Education Foundation. Uh, it's a 501c4, uh, the dark, so-called dark money group that was created by Greg Brockhouse, a uh, former mayoral candidate here, and uh, managed in part by uh, Colin Strother, who, uh, as you know, is a longtime aide to Henry Cuellar. Um, this, uh, this group spent money on ads that attacked you. And I'm just curious if you what your thoughts are. Do you, do you think that this type of expenditure is just par for the course these days in elections or, or does, do the players involved, uh, uh, sh- should they, should they give you more pause? I mean, we knew that attacks like these were going to happen, especially someone like, Colin Strother, who obviously is no fan of our campaign and has been, you know, really on the attack since the moment we decided to announce even two years ago, um, the first time that we ran, um, very much a kind of scorched earth um, kind of strategist. Um, So it didn't surprise us. I mean, we knew, especially coming into this election, the fact that we are in 48.2% of the vote in the race last time around, that we... um, we weren't going to be underestimated by Cuellar's campaign and people who support him. Um, and then I think especially, I mean, the fact that he doubled down on his anti-choice stances, um, despite, you know, the Women's Health Protection Act vote in Congress being put on the floor because of SB8 here in Texas. And for him to, you know, be the only Democrat to vote against it. We knew that he was making a calculated effort to try to get those anti-choice groups to really back him, Um, obviously in our district. And I know this because, again, knocking on doors and talking directly to voters, people want a pro-choice candidate. So we felt that, like, you know, he was trying to court their support so that they would back him. So it wasn't surprising to see that, Um, you know, this group was trying to spend money in this way. Um, but I, we also thought, you know, after um, news came out, as like breaking down, especially like who well, the origins of this group and then that Colin Strother was involved. I mean, there's some ethics um, concerns there because if he's a longtime Coyote, it was on payroll as of, you know, a few months ago. Mm-hmm. You can't necessarily go into the independent expenditure side. So. Um, I don't know. I, I believe there was reports that, you know, this FBI investigation also kind of probed into that. Um, but as to results, I mean, we're all waiting to see what happens. 
I wanted to talk to you a little bit about, you know, your decision to run when you entered uh, the the last campaign in, in 2019. I think you were probably about 26 years old at the time. You'd never run for office as far as I know. And it was obviously a big step to take on someone who was seeking their ninth term in Congress, who's kind of been a political institution in South Texas. I wanted to uh, to kind of get a sense from you as to what went into your your thought process in, in really making such a bold move and and really what uh, kind of what your political uh, uh, awakening was uh, growing up. What was it that sort of stirred your political consciousness? You're you're definitely someone who is I think been been uh, pushing to have the you know the Democratic Party uh, move in a more progressive direction. Uh, and that's that's what your 2020 campaign was about. That's certainly what this campaign is about. What was it that sort of got you um, sort of thinking along those lines? Yeah, I mean, I really think it comes back to like my lived experience, being very aware of, you know, what led to my parents coming to the United States. Um, they had to move here because my sister needed a very urgent medical operation. And it was really high risk. She was a you know, very young, and there was no doctor in Mexico that was willing to perform it. So like many of my clients, you know, as an immigration attorney, that decision was made for them, right? Like, they have to do what they can to make sure that their child is going to be okay. So they moved here. And then they were beneficiaries of the 1986 immigration reform. So like, knowing that a pro bono immigration attorney helped them um, was really what inspired me to be an advocate for people in my community, especially people like my parents who can't afford to avail themselves of the system that's supposed to be made for them. But in reality, you know, there's so many obstacles along the way. Um, so that was always, you know, I, I always wanted to to serve. And I think that the most frustrating thing that I was experiencing, um, because I, I became you know, involved in immigration advocacy work since 2012, which was really exciting because that's when DACA was first announced and mm -hmm. knowing again how policy really affects people and like, you know, my loved ones, including family and friends and neighbors. Um, it was an exciting time. But then you contrast that to the moment that I become an attorney um, and I begin re representing people during the Trump administration and how frustrating and hardworking uh, how frustrating and heartbreaking it was to see these hardworking people, um, you know, get their families torn apart. And I think for me, I kept, I'm the kind of person that always can like reassesses, am I in the best position possible to make the biggest impact? And it was happening at the same time that an organization called Justice Democrats was working with um, the community to try to find a challenger against Goyad. And I think, you know, I just, the pain, I guess, of seeing like families like my parents and especially because I was representing young people that were literally the same age I was and how different their lives were because they weren't born five minutes north of the border like I was. Um, it, it was just the injustice and the pain was just so much. And, you know, then I get approached and I'm told that I was nominated by, you know, my teacher from high school to run. And I think to me, that was kind of like, well, you know, I'm being asked to run. I have this opportunity to actually change policy and create laws like the ones that help my parents. Like I owe it 
to everyone that I've worked with and my community to to step up and run. And honestly, it was the scariest decision in my life. I mean, I, I was 26 years, well, 25 when I took the decision to to get ready and prepared to run. And then I turned 26 and then the next month I, I announced. Um, but honestly, it's been such an honor of a lifetime to work with so many amazing people in the community and to come so close. I think we were asking people to imagine the impossible, like taking on someone like Cuellar, who, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think people outside of Laredo might forget that he's been representing my hometown longer than I've been alive because he was in the Texas House before that. And right. then he was Secretary of State under Rick Perry. And then he ran for Congress. Mm-hmm. So it really was a David versus Goliath kind of moment. But I think people now, especially how close we got last time, it's like he, it is possible to win, especially when you got the community behind you. So Congressman Cuellar, uh, he, he's often said, I mean, you know, he, he's known as one of the most uh, conservative Democrats in Congress. And he often uh, cites his own district as, you know, as the reason he votes the way he does on abortion rights, gun rights, and for the uh, oil and gas industry. First of all, I mean, do you do you see pockets of the district in the same way as conservative as, you know, with ver- voters as conservative as he makes them out to be? I mean, it's usually in the really red areas that I think that is the case, although the overwhelming majority of the district is is blue. I think the problem is that And again, something that we saw as we were knocking on doors last cycle is that people felt like, well, what's the point in voting if, you know, the Democratic primary is usually, you know, where people are supposed to, you know, to get out to try to see who's going to make it to the general election because the district is, you know, is overwhelmingly Democrat. Um, So the action always happens in the Democratic primary. But then if you don't have other options and there's only one, you know, the incumbent is running and he's running unchallenged then what's the point of voting is basically what people kept telling us at the doors. Um, So I, I think one of the strengths that we had as a campaign last time, and the reason why we got so close is that we were telling people there is an option this time. Um, I honestly feel that if we would have had another month, we probably would have won that election. The problem was that what we were facing is that, Obviously, I was starting with zero name ID, right? And Congressman Coyad has been representing this area of, of Texas for a very long time. So people knew who he was. And it's really difficult to try to get someone to vote for you when they don't know who you are. Um, so, you know, being a grassroots campaign, again, taking zero money from corporate PACs, we had a really tight budget. And it was more of a resource issue and um, a timing issue. Like, we're we going to have enough time to put our campaign in front of voters um, and that's what made it a little bit more difficult to to cross over the finish line last time. But I think this time around, it's great that we're not starting from scratch. People know exactly what we're you know, fighting for. They know a little bit more about our policy stances. We've made a lot of headway in explaining policies in both English and Spanish, you know, in terms of like Medicare for all or increasing the minimum wage. Um, things that Coyard doesn't talk about. Um, so we had a lot, we had our work cut out for us last time and this time as well, but it's great to know that the work that we did two years ago was still there. Now, because of the Eagle Ford shale in South Texas, the oil and gas industry is a major employer in your district. 
And Congressman Cuellar, in the past, and I'm, I'm sure will again say that your support of kind of Green Deal initiatives, clean energy initiatives, is a job killer for the district. How do you, how do you respond to that? I think he missed Well, I mean, he has to make his own points and is going to try to exaggerate and, you know, tell people, um, you know, misrepresentations of what our platform actually is. The reason why I was even able to get the support of, you know, like even the Texas AFL-CIO, right, um, when they, they do represent, you know, people who work in the oil fields or the, the pipe fitters, people that, you know, have jobs in the oil and gas industry was because I see my role as someone who is coming from Texas and a state that's very dependent on the oil and gas industry for jobs as we're heading into transitioning into a renewable economy, which is already happening. Um, my piece is advocating for workers, making sure that those people aren't get, aren't getting left behind, that our oil field workers are going to be given the tools and the resources to be able to have a job beyond something just in the oil and gas industry, which is a dying industry. Um, because we know climate change is real and like people in our district, you know, recognize that. But the problem is that in an area where there's so limited opportunities, um, an area where, um, you know, there's only a few pathways to the middle class and one of them is oil and gas. It's really hard to get people on board. And I recognize that because, you know, as someone that grew up in a house where we had financial hardships, um, it's scary to have to think about like where, like how food is going to be put on the table or, or how, you know, the bills are going to be paid at the end of the month. And, you know, people, when we tell them about what our vision for South Texas is, investing in opportunities, investing in these new jobs, making sure that they're here in South Texas so people don't have to travel um, outside of the district, like that's the best thing that we can do so we can be leaders in this new economy. Are you talking about taking uh, oil and gas workers and saying, okay, well, your industry is dying. Are you saying move into clean energy projects or are you talking about just yes. retraining and putting them into other things? I mean, I think it has to be a combination of both, right? And I think we have to start off like letting people know, like we're not here to kill your job and immediately replace you because that's not the case, but like creating these jobs, investing in these jobs and then transitioning from there. Because otherwise, like if we don't have workers buy-in, we're never going to make progress in terms of transitioning into a renewable economy. And I recognize that. And that's why I want to make sure that workers feel, you know, that there is a plan and that it's not just, you know, we're going to kill your job and, you know, then they're wondering, like, how am I going to provide for my family? Because, again, that is that is something scary, and I don't want people, as someone who has gone through that, I don't want others going through it as well. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, the couple of bills that, that uh, Congress has been uh, looking at for over the past several months. Um, last year, uh, there was an infrastructure bill that was passed by Congress that was signed into law by President Biden. And all along for, for I think, for progressive Democrats, that infrastructure bill was linked to uh, a more amb ambitious uh, spending package called uh, Build Back Better. And the idea being that, that progressive Democrats um, wanted assurances from more moderate Democrats, uh, particularly in the Senate, that they would 
support Build Back Better uh, before progressives in the House um, got behind the infrastructure bill. The infrastructure bill ended up ha- being signed into law. And um, we're, as of now, Build Back Better is still being kind of blocked in the Senate uh, with its future uncertain. Uh, I was curious if you had been in Congress over this past year or so, how would you have handled that? Would you have voted for the infrastructure bill without really having a, a you know, a, a solid sense that um, that Build Back Better was also going to get uh, get through Congress? Well, I mean, the problem here was that like the compromise was that, right, that both of these were going to get passed through the House and uh, the Senate at the same time to make sure that, um, you know, Democrats have their assurances that, you know, this very bold piece of legislation with the Build Back Better, which are a lot of the promises that, you know, President Biden and Democrats ran on, make sure that we we pass it because that's showing folks like Democrats can govern and we are able to deliver and we this is why we need your support to keep doing things like this. The problem was that, you know, there was people like Weyad, um who were trying to do the bidding of no labels in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce um, and they were basically obstructing this piece of legislation from getting passed. If he hadn't done that, if one person hadn't joined that group, um, we wouldn't have, be having this conversation to begin with. And that piece, both pieces of legislation would have passed last summer. Um, so for me, it's more of, you know, what are we doing in terms of negotiating? We need to make sure that we're delivering for our base because unfortunately, like we've been seeing, especially when, when that happened, when you know, the infrastructure bill was passed on its own. There were so many people that were upset over the phones when we were phone banking because they were like, this was our opportunity. Like the momentum that Democrats had to show their contrast, especially with the prior administration, um, like what kind of negotiating are we doing, right? Um, And especially with things that would cover like, expanding Medicare, right? And expanding um, or having the child tax credit or having more affordable childcare, things that people actually need here. Um, it was it was really, I don't want to say interesting, but I did notice that a lot of more people were paying attention to what Cuellar was doing this time as opposed to last time when we really had to do the voter education piece of telling people like, do you know what your representative has been up to in Congress? But this time around, people were definitely paying attention and they were very upset. Well, this whole issue has kind of brought to the fore uh, something that I've found really interesting over the past few years, which is, you know, there's some, something of, of division that's happening within the Democratic Party. When I when I talk particularly to, to young progressives, I sense that there's, uh, you know, some frustration uh, with the, the way more established figures in the party um, or the way they compromise on certain issues or the way that they're maybe not always willing to, to take really bold uh, progressive action. And then uh, when I sometimes talk to people who are older and have been you know, part of the, 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 the Democratic Party for a longer time, they'll sometimes express to me some, you know, they're it sounds as if they're a little bit puzzled or maybe uh, even nervous about sort of the young progressive movement that's that's happening in the, in the party. And I, I wanted to get a sense from you, like, you, you know, when you think when you look at the future of the party, I mean, do, do you see 
a, a split as inevitable or do you, or what direction do you see the party going in, you know, over the next decade or so? I don't think I see a split as inevitable. I think people are just naturally hesitant to change because I think we all realize, especially right now with these upcoming elections, like the stakes, right? And they're always very high. And I think anytime you try something new, you know, people are like, well, can it work? Like, I'm just going to stick to what, you know, has been working for me. Like, I know, like, running for Congress and not taking, you know, a dime of corporate PAC money might be something new and, like, something other people haven't done and can it be done. And I think with many, not just our campaign, but many others across, you know, the country that have started doing it um, over the past few cycles, like, we can show that, yes, like, it is possible to actually do this. We nickeled and dimed our way to a $2 million race last time, and we hope to do the same this time around, but we'll see because uh, we're also in a pandemic. Um, but I think, I mean, we're doing our job if we are trying to push the envelope in terms of policies that are actually going to affect, you know, people's lives in a, in a positive way. And I mean, my dream is to one day, you know, be out of touch and have the youth tell me that I'm out of touch so I can just pass the baton (laughs) and they can take over because I mean it's so inspiring like even as I'm out there like you know recruiting volunteers and and stuff and like seeing like 15 year olds lead our phone banks and seeing 17 year olds like want to knock on doors with their parents and it's like I'm doing my job if like one of you all is ready to challenge me for Congress in like a decade or so, because it shows that, you know, people we can't try to make, you know, change with just a really shallow bench. Like we really need to invest in in our local leaders. And, you know, sometimes there are 15 and 17 year olds who are later on going to run for Congress and they might mm-hmm. make that decision at 25. Who knows? So you're saying you're going to willingly step aside and take it from now? <laughs> I mean, look, if I can retire at 35, I've been saying this for a long time, especially as an immigration attorney that does removal defense work. I mean, uh-huh. that's the dream. Okay. Uh, before we wrap things up, I wanted to ask you about some, an issue that doesn't uh, often come up in, in congressional races, but uh, I was curious to get your take on it. You've, you've probably been following um Situation with Greg Kassar, who's going to be, uh, you know, part of the the uh, campaign event that that uh, we mentioned at the beginning, uh, that's happening uh, on Saturday, and um, there's recently been some coverage of the fact that um, Jewish Insider published a letter, which I believe he uh, Greg Kassar wrote to uh, to a rabbi, talking about Israel and and the and uh, the issue with uh, Israel and and, the, and Palestinians, and. Uh, in the, in the letter that Greg Kassar, uh, he was very open about his support for uh, Palestinians having uh, peace and security and democracy. Uh, but he also uh, said that he supported uh, the, uh, continued U.S. Uh, military aid to Israel and uh, did not support, uh, you know, boycotts or um, uh, anything along those lines. Um, there has been, you know, on on among you know some progressives, there's been some criticism of, of his uh, of that letter and uh, the Austin chapter of um, uh, Democratic Socialists of America um, announced on I think it was on Sunday that while many of their the individual in the organization uh, who have been supporters of his for a while will continue to support him as an organization they they are not going to continue working for his campaign and um, 
So I, I was just curious how we have this, this issue does come up in Congress when it comes to, to, to funding or military assistance for Israel. And I just wondered, you know, what your, your position is on this. Yeah. I mean, especially as a human rights attorney, I mean, I've said it from the start that um, I'm always going to be on the side of making sure that people aren't being persecuted, you know, because of who they are or, you know, what their religious beliefs are. Um, Obviously I, in terms of this, I, wholeheartedly support, you know, recognizing the humanity of, of Palestinians and making sure that, you know, they're not being subjected to um, just discrimination, right? Because of, you know, where they are and who they are, where they are. Um, and self-determination is always something that we talk about in terms of this. I haven't really been following what has been happening with uh, Greg Kassar because we're really busy with our campaign. So I haven't read Understandably, the letter. Yeah. Um, yeah and uh, but I mean, I'm really, you know, happy to, you know, have the support of some of the members. And they've been out there knocking on doors with us. And I mean, this is something that I'm always looking for in terms of um, trying to make sure that I understand um, a lot of what's happening on the other side of the world. This is actually a topic that was like fairly new to me a few years ago, because as you can imagine, just being in South Texas, um, sure. you know, this isn't a conversation that really comes up often and it doesn't come up at the doors. Um, but I also understand that, you know, as a member of Congress, I would have mm-hmm. a responsibility in making sure um, we're overseeing how our money's being spent. And I just want to make it very clear that, I don't want it being used, you know, to to hurt other people. And again, especially in terms of Palestinians mm-hmm. um, who are just trying to live their life out there. So, yeah, um, so, so would, you, would you not support uh, mm-hmm. a military U.S. military aid to, to Israel? We've been talking about restricting, you know, the aid and making sure that it's not being used for um, for, again, human rights abuses and especially mm-hmm. annexation. Uh, further annexation of, you know, settlements and encampments. Um, But again, I think it also is really important to know what is in those bills. I usually Mm -hmm. try to tell people like, you know, these hypotheticals are just really difficult for me to like answer Mm -hmm. because the reality is I don't know exactly what the language is. Mm -hmm. And especially, I mean, you know how it goes in Congress, sometimes like things that aren't you wouldn't think are going in the same bill they are. Um, but I just want to make sure that the money that the United States is spending, not just, you know, sending it to, to Israel, but like other parts of the world, um, that it's done in a way that is morally right, because we do have to make sure that our money, you know, our public money isn't being used to commit human rights violations across the world. Well, Jessica Cisneros, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Good luck to you. And uh, we really appreciate you being part of the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate y'all taking the time. And for everyone listening in, we hope you're doing well. Hope you made it through the last week's freeze. uh, Okay. And um, encouraging everybody to get out to vote. You're going to, I think by the time we we talk to you again, um, early voting will have started. So if you have a chance, please get out to vote and uh, we'll be back next week. Take care.